A fear that leads to fearlessness. Uh, I've wrestled with that title for the last week, and I really don't like the title, but it is nonetheless the title I'm going to work from. But I wrestled with this idea also of entitling it A Fear That Leads to Fearless Living. In either case, maybe we could decide together, but um, it's, uh, it's just a privilege and honor to be with you in these moments together. A few months ago, I was invited uh, by John Carney, and I see John's here today. Uh, he was invited me to take a bicycle ride. It was an off-road bike ride uh, through Marshall Canyon at dusk. Now, this is not, um, I'm used to road biking, but mountain biking, off-road biking is a bit foreign to me because it requires technique, and I do not have technique. And so it was a, a night ride, so I remember I said yes to John, and, and I put my uh, light in the, in the socket to charge it up and put my night light on, and I met John and Mark, and we took off on this ride through Marshall Canyon at, at dusk. And I'll never forget, it was probably the most fearful and terrifying experience that I have ever had. Spending that much time with John can be that sort of... No, just kidding. I was following uh, these guys at this point uh, through some harrowing twists and turns through a kind of a beautiful canopied evening trail. I was, we were jumping over big rocks and boulders... And I thought, as those guys did it, I, I can do it too. And, and so I was jumping these boulders thinking, hey, this is pretty cool. And, and we jumped over a few streams, and I thought, wow, John, he knows how to live. This is really fun. But the thing I was most excited about at this point was that I hadn't fallen yet and, uh, and tried to make up some excuse. But I was still on, my, still on my bike, and then we made it through these canopy trails. We came out onto a wider trail that was dirt at this point, I just remember John said, don't, uh, don't, run over the, don't run over the sticks and avoid the rocks. So I did exactly as John said, and we took, kept going. And once we got to the top of a hill, we stopped for a moment to, uh, to rest, and that's when the fear hit me. John and Mark told me, they said, did you see those rattlesnakes in the road back there? I said, what rattlesnakes? They look like sticks. You've got to be kidding. That's one of my greatest fear objects in life, are snakes. And I was just literally, we were just literally running just right next to them. Had I known that, well, I probably wouldn't have been on the ride with John and Mark. But it was awesome. We, uh, John had his camera. He took a few pictures, and we shared those back and forth. But it, we, it's very clear that that is one of my clear, undeniable fear objects in life. We've all got them, don't we? I'm not going to reveal too many other fears today because some of you have sinister minds, and you might think those sorts of things on how to get even with me or get back with me at some reason. You know, I was kind of curious, this last week I, I was reading through the gospel stories of Mark, or excuse me, of Matthew and Luke, the stories of the birth of Christ. And I was just kind of curious at that point as I read through them, what brought fear into the persons that were in, involved in that story? And it's interesting, in the gospel account of Matthew, there are two references, and that's all, two references to fear. And those were in reference to Joseph. The first thing that happened to Joseph that caused fear in his heart was that an angel appeared to him and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. We're not going to get into all the reasons for that, 
That was a great fear of his. And then also the angel came to Joseph in a dream and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was still reigning in Judea, he was filled with fear. So he went to Nazareth instead. And then the account in Luke describes that the shepherds were in the fields watching their flocks by night, and the angels appeared to them, and you guessed it, fear. They were sorely afraid. A few months ago, I was having coffee with just a, a great guy, uh, Dick, Dick Bonner, and, uh, and he was telling me about a story of a neighbor that he has named Stefan. And as he shared the story of Stefan, I just said, I've got to meet this guy. And I asked Dick, is there any way you can arrange a meeting that the three of us can get together for a few minutes together and have coffee? He had his neighbor come, Stefan, and I met him, and what a gracious gentleman. He's a retiree, and uh, he's got a beautiful family, and, uh, you know, he's, got, he's, got, uh, he's at that point in life where he can, uh, as I love how John Reed says it, where he can choose to be purposeful. He can say no to things and say yes to things that are even greater. And so um, we, uh, we were sitting there talking, and he said that I go into a certain part of the world that's dangerous, and if the government knew I was there, they would arrest me. And uh, I'm not going to tell you where that particular part of the world is, but he said that he goes for the purpose of bringing the gospel through a translator, and as his entree, he takes medical supplies, he takes glasses, and he uses these things as he collects them and saves up money and talks to individuals. He takes those inside these very restricted areas, and he shares them with, with village people, people who are obscure and who are lost and who are marginalized, and he brings these supplies to them, and then with the translator, he shares the love of God with them and sees many come to Christ. And then he goes back again maybe three times a year to disciple and encourage those believers, those new believers, and bring Bible supplies. He sleeps outside of the community, so if, if authorities come in, which they have before, they won't be able to easily find him, and he won't endanger those village people. And I can't remember how I asked the question, but he looked at me and he said, do you want to go with me? And, you know, for just a moment, a little bit of fear came through my heart. And I thought, well, well sure, but um, let, me, let me get back with you on that. <laughs> you know, I asked him a question, though, that I got my, an unconventional answer to, and I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. And as I, as I looked at him in the eye, I said, Stefan, why do you do this? You're a retiree. You've got a great family, great life. You're comfortable. Why do you do this? And the answer just almost floored me. He didn't say the typical Christian answer like, uh, well, God commands us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Great answer. And he didn't say I go because I, there's such an urgency in my soul to do so. I mean, he just didn't, it just wasn't that typical answer, but he looked at me and he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, I go because... I fear God. I go because I fear God. The children of Israel had been wandering in the desert for 40 years. 
waiting to go into God's promised land. It was, an approximately, a, it was approximately about a 10, 11, 12-day hike. If you and I got, got together and walked through the, that, that geography, we'd be there in less than two weeks, even if there were a million of us. But it took 40 years due to the issue of these people not viewing God correctly. Their faith was misdirected. Their faith led to fear, and their fear led to rebellion. Fear has this powerful, debilitating effect on our lives. It robs us of peace. It robs us of the beauty of joy. It robs us even of of our health. And it can even ultimately rob us of our lives. One day, a gentleman was walking outside the city on his way to a graveyard shift. And as he walked out, he ran into death. Death had been personified. And and he looked at death and he said, what are you doing? And death said, I'm going in to take 10,000 lives tonight into this large city. This man said, you can't do that. And death said, you bet I can. That's what I do. They separated and parted. The man went to work and death went into that city to claim those 10,000 lives. On the way out of the city, death ran into this man as he was getting off work and there must have been 70,000 people following death outside of this community. And this man was bold and he spoke to death and he said, you told me that you were only going to take 10,000 tonight. He said, well, that's what I did. I took 10,000 by natural causes, but the other 60,000 died of worry and fear. You see, it has a powerful effect on our lives. The Bible predicts that as we move towards the last days, that things will actually get worse. In Luke chapter 21, speaking in the last days, it says this, that men's hearts will fail them for fear of the things that are coming upon the earth. Now, interestingly, the Bible commands us over and over not to fear and to stop fearing and to be anxious for nothing. And this is certainly the most common and prevalent command in all of Scripture in the entire Bible. And yet it's possibly the most violated command also in Scripture. You know, if I were to ask you right now just to pause, to close your eyes, To think for just a moment, what is your greatest fear or fears that you brought into this worship center today? If you can, just think about what what that fear or fears might be. It might be a situation or a circumstance. It might be a person. Could be so many different things from a health crisis to a family relationship that's gone south to the worry over a wayward teenager to whether or not there'll be social security when you really need it. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. What is your greatest fear or fears? The Bible commands us not to fear. The most interesting paradox occurs in Scripture. On one hand, we have all these commands that tell us not to fear. And yet on the other hand, we have this explicit command that says to fear God. So how do we reconcile the two? Let's take a look real quickly at Psalm 25.14. Psalms 25.14 tells us that the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. Psalms 103.17 says, 
But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord, there is a strong, there is strong confidence and his children will have refuge. So we have multiple commands in scripture not to fear. And yet on the other hand, we have the strong foundational commands to fear God and to make him the central theme of our lives. I want to suggest that these two commands are very much related. We can't, we can't keep the first command to fear not unless we keep the command to fear God. If we obey one, we will automatically obey the other. We're all fearful of something. It's something that we think about. It, 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 it's in our minds. In fact, today, I'm so glad we don't have one of these kind of uh, registers, if you will, that would gauge and record how much we fear or how much we worry about something or some circumstance or someone. If that were registered and readable and legible on our forehead, we'd probably be very embarrassed uh, to see one another. You mean you worry and you fear that? That often? That much? Well, we're all fearful of something, of someone. The fear of objects or situations or circumstances has a power over us and it can alter our lives. It can reach deep within our lives and it can impact us in a very negative way. And throughout all of history, I think probably the greatest fear of all mankind is the fear of death. Now, when you talk to folks who have a strong faith in the Lord, they don't really fear death because they have a clear perception of what is waiting for them in heaven. But when they're honest, they do tell us, they do tell, tell one another that their fear of what they must go through before they go home to be with the Lord. Now this is interesting. The exact same word used in the Bible for fear, the fear that we possess towards a fear object or a situation or a circumstance is the same word used for fearing God. It's the same word. This fear of God, however, does not produce fright. Take a look at 1 John 4.18. It says this, There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear, because fear has punishment. And he that feareth is not made perfect in love. There is no fear in love because God is love. What does fearing God in the Bible mean? I think we all know what it means. What does it, what does it mean? It means to respect. It means to reverence God. To recognize that he is in full control. He is greatly, he is great and he is greatly to be praised and yet his greatness is unsearchable. And to, we are to, in, in reverencing God, in fearing God, we are to not only recognize his greatness, but in response to that, we should be doing this, surrendering to that power, yielding our lives to that great God, and conform, allowing him to conform our lives into his image and not ours. So I think we all know what it means to fear God, 
But maybe the question today really is this. Have I surrendered to the, to the power of this great God? I mean, really surrendered to it. Well, as the children of Israel are standing poised to take the promised land, they're standing out of Kadesh, outside at Kadesh Barnea, ready to possess the land. It's been 40 years of wandering, and now it seems like the wandering is just about over. We're at the conclusion of this. And God asks for 12 people, 12 individuals, one from each of the tribes of Israel, to go into the land and to be spies. Check out the land and see what's there. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you'll remember the results. The 12 go in. However, only two of them come back with a favorable report, Joshua and Caleb. You know, you do the math, it's somewhere around 13, 14% favorable report from these two. The other 10 come back with a negative report. Well, Joshua and Caleb are speaking in Numbers chapter 14, verse 9. And they say, they, Joshua and Caleb are speaking, they say this, Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then you contrast that with the ten spies. And they speak in in Numbers chapter 13, verse 38. And they say, nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. You see this contrast? And the cities, they're fortified and they're very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Enoch there. That was a race of abnormally large people. Some believe maybe Goliath was a descendant of them. But you can see very quickly the contrast between the two spies and the ten spies when they went into this land. The two spies were filled with a fear of God, and the ten spies were filled with a fear of man. Numbers chapter 13, beginning in verse 32, says this. So they, referring to the ten spies, so they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone is in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we, there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are a part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. And here comes the conflict of fears. The ten spies would not go into the land because they feared the people of the land more than they feared God Almighty. Man. God had shown his faithfulness to these people over and over and over again. When he led them out of Egypt under Pharaoh's oppressive rule, as he parted the Red Sea, as he destroyed Pharaoh's army, as he provided manna in the day and a pillar at night and a cloud by day to guide them. And they still feared the people in the land more than they feared God. And despite all of this, the people chose to respect the power of the Canaanites more than the power of God. And I just think this is absolutely tragic. And I'm guilty of the same thing. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22 says it this way. It is he, that is God, who sets above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. This is God's divine perspective and it forces me to rethink, 
to recalibrate my thinking and my attitude. Paul said it this way to the church in Colossae in Asia Minor. He said it this way, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You see, they chose to focus on the fear objects of the world rather than looking at the great object of fear, the Lord God Almighty. So question, who are the Nephilim? Who are the sons of Anak in your life and in my life? What are your greatest fear objects in this life? Is it your future? Uh, well, whatever it is, just think about what, you had come, in, what had come into your mind just moments ago. And then I just want to share this thought with you. Someone put it very well when they said this. We fear so much because we fear God so little. And one fear really does cure the other. We fear our circumstances so much because we fear God so little. One fear cures the other. How do I strengthen my fear quotient? How do I do it? Well, there's a number of ways to do it. The first one is to be here today. The second is to look for any opportunity that you can to sacrifice your schedule to spend time with God, to be with him, to be in his presence. Because the more you and I are in his presence, the less the, 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 those fear objects and fear concerns in our lives will diminish and the fear of God will only grow stronger. There's an amazing story that I'm going to kind of conclude with that uh, we might be familiar with, Matthew chapter 14. And uh, uh, when Jesus walked on the water, he, uh, he had just finished a long day of feeding the 5,000. It was a tiring day. Um, when we do our luncheons once a month for adults 50 plus, um, we're tired of feeding 150 people. Um, I can't imagine, well, 5,000 to maybe 15,000 considering women and children. But Jesus comes to this point in life, that, or point in the day, the day is about over, and immediately it says in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 14, verse 20, 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat to go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now, this is the lake or the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and it's, uh, it's an awesome body of water. It's the only body of water in the entire world where two people have walked on it. You'd think that would probably happen maybe on the Salton Sea or close to us or, or the Dead Sea where there's lots of salt, but no, it didn't happen there. And so Jesus, long day, sends the disciples out on the boat. The Sea of Galilee is maybe uh, four to six miles wide, maybe 10 to 12 miles long. It's at its deepest point, we're told, maybe 900 feet deep, but averages about 200 feet deep. But what's interesting about this is it's surrounded by a lot of mountain ranges. To the south is Mount Arbel, and many believe that's the mountain that Jesus was about to go up to and pray that night after he had sent the disciples out into the sea. And it's a mountain which I know a number of years ago when I was there, and maybe you did the same thing if you ever went to Israel, I climbed that mountain. It's not very difficult. It's only about 1,500 feet, and uh, it's a pretty gradual uh, uh, climb, but it looks has a beautiful view over the Sea of Galilee, this lake. But then, if you look to the north and the northeast, you'll see the Golan Heights hills that rise a couple of thousand feet 
2,500 feet. And on the other side is Syria, modern-day Syria and Lebanon. But when those winds come up over those mountains and hit that lake, they just create huge, massive waves, somewhere between 10 and 12 feet high easily. And when you're talking a couple of thousand years ago in a little wooden boat, a Jesus boat, and you look at disciples who didn't have probably swim lessons as children, and they probably aren't real adept in the water, Jesus sends them out, and he dismisses the crowds. And after he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves, because the wind was against it. And during the fourth watch of the night, and I believe that's roughly between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. They were fearful. And they said what I would have said. Not believing in ghosts, they said it's a ghost. And they, cry, and they, they said this and they cried out in fear. Now, I've never been in a situation where I've heard men cry out in fear. Well, I, I can't, but I wouldn't mention the names of those men who they were. But I can't imagine 12 men crying out in fear at the same time. That would send shivers through my spine. They cried out in fear, but Jesus, and this just says a lot about the compassion of Jesus, he immediately, he didn't let, he didn't let him wait, but immediately said, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. In other words, Jesus is saying this to those men. Make me the one whom you fear. Don't fear your circumstances, but fear me. Look to me. And I love it. It says so much about Peter. Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Peter got out of the boat, down out of the boat, walked on the water, and he came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, his fear object, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, you and I are in this boat. Our boat looks a little bit different. And God is just saying, as tumultuous as it gets in our lives, remember the fear object that we should really fear, and that is to fear God. And sometimes I fear all those things in my life so much because I fear God so little. By the grace of God, we've made it through 2018 almost. And if the Lord is so good to allow us to move into 2019 and experience another year, there's going to be things that are going to cause great trepidation and fear in our hearts and lives. And the world looks at you and I, and they ask, how do we deal with it? And we pray that we will deal with it in a God-honoring way, that our focus will be the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will take and diminish those fears in our lives. And one fear really does cure the other. And this year, may you and I be committed to filling our, our, our tanks, our quotient, with the fear of Almighty God rather than the fear of man and circumstances and situations that are out of our control. I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these moments in your word. God, thank you for the reality 
that God, you are a, a, a great God, greatly to be praised. You are, your greatness is unsearchable. And yet, you make yourself known to us because you love us. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out all fear. God, may we spend the rest of our lives getting to know you as we've never known you before. And may we practice what we preach. May we live out what we know. And God, may we, as, you t- as Paul told the church of Colossae, may we set our minds, our thoughts, our affections on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You are in control. And God, we want to trust you. And we want to have that wholesome, beautiful fear of you today in each day of our lives. Lord, we thank you that you're in charge today and we place our faith, confidence, and trust in you today. And we pray these things in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.